We are in part 23 of our Life of Worship series, going through the book of First and Second Samuel. We're now in Second Samuel as we cruise through towards the end of the year. Uh, we will have completed both books by the end of this year. Pretty exciting. Part 23, and I entitled this morning's message, An Unfair Fight. So let me begin with some ideas. We spend a lot of time stressing about things outside of our control, yes? Um, and as I began to uh, hit on you this morning about some heavy subjects, let me clear something up, or otherwise you're going to think I'm being a jerk. Uh, I'm king of stressing about things that aren't real, all right? How do I know that? Because I've had panic disorder since I was six, you all know that. I'm on medication every day, and my life has been miserable because of anxiety and panic problems. I know what it is. I've lived it my whole life. So when I get on you about watch out what you're worrying about, I'm preaching to me as well as to you. Yeah. All right. So this is not a talking down thing. This is a we thing. And so let's go back to the message. It is this. We stress about things we have no control over. Now, I'm very practical in my leadership. I'm practical as a dad. I'm practical as a husband. And I'll be practical with you. If I believe that the stressing over your situation would help, I want you to stress. I, I, I'm not all against stress. There is some stress that is very, very healthy and very good. As a matter of fact, we can stress about things in two different camps. One of them, the stress is extraordinarily positive. For example, let's say you are stressing out over the issue that you're not spending any time with the Lord. You are completely focused on your job or focused on your activities or your entertainment and God is being left out and that causes anxiety or irritation in your spirit. Guess what? You need that. It's your motivation to get your life back in line. I don't want to remove that stress. I want that stress to be right there, right in your face until you change. That's good stress because there's something you can do about it. But if you're stressing over a situation that is entirely out of your control, it is not making the situation better. It actually has no value and it's detrimental because it's tearing you down inside. Now, I know this sounds much easier to say than to do, but understand that your actions and behavior trail from your thoughts. We've got to work up here first. Get our minds wrapped around something. Then we begin to make out changes in our lives. Now, I'm not a let's abdicate personal responsibility stuff. I'm very much about personal responsibility. If there's something you can do, do it to the best of your ability. All right. I'm not a let's sit and watch TV because God's going to do what he's going to do guy. That's not me. If there is something you darn well know and you've cleared with the Lord that this is something I should be pursuing, I want you to pursue it with all your heart. I want you to be able to go to bed exhausted knowing that you've done your best. But if that has already been cleared, you have to hand it off to the Lord. You have to hand it off to the Lord. In all the areas that I stress about, and usually my toughest time is usually bedtime. As I'm laying in bed trying to go to sleep, that's usually when anxieties hit the most. There are times that I have to say there's nothing I can do about it tonight. I refuse to dwell on this anymore. If I still feel the same way in the morning, I will do something about it. But as of right now, I must take whatever it is and it has to be handed off to the Lord. And remember this, if you hand it to the Lord, you are not letting it go. You're handing off to someone that knows how to do it better. 
Okay? It's a transfer. It is not dropping. However, we must understand that if God wants something to happen, he'll make it happen. That also means that if you are doing something in your life that is against the will of God and he wants to shut it down, there's nothing you can do to keep it alive. He will shut you down. Because God is in control, God is sovereign, God is powerful, and he will drive through and make sure that what he needs to happen will happen. When the Bible says that God fights our battles, and you're going to hear that when God talked to David, King David, and said, I will fight your battles for you. When we hear phrases like that, we need to clarify what God means. God does not mean that I'm going to go around and beat up everybody you don't like. That's not what he said. I'll fight your battles. Well, any obstacles that come your way, God's going to blow through them. That is not true. What God is saying is, I will fight any of your battles that I start. (laughs) All right? There are battles in your life that God has agitated and begun. And he knows full well what's going to occur in your life. And yes, those will be nailed down. The fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet is this. From a big picture perspective, this is the truth. God will take care of his business. God will take care of his business. It does not say that God will take care of all of your business. It does not mean that God's going to rubber stamp everything that you do. It means God will take care of his business. Therefore, instead of panicking and worrying and fighting and fretting wouldn't it make more sense to drive all of our energy to discern what god's will is wouldn't that be the best use of our time shouldn't all of our lives be primarily about seeking god and what he wants it only means practical because if he's going to take care of what he's about you need to line up with that I need to line up with that. And we should spend the vast majority of our time praying through, seeking counsel, and always trying to find out what God desires in any given situation. It's the best use of our time because once you're locked in with that, you're good to go. If you haven't already, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 1. It's page 260 in the Bibles that were under the seats. Last time we were in this story, God promised David four really amazing things. He delivered to him what we have already defined as one of the greatest covenants in all of Israel's history. It's known as the Davidic covenant. And he told David that he promised that he would do four things on his behalf. Does anybody remember what those are? The first one is that I will make your name great. The second thing is I will give you rest from your enemies. Underneath your leadership, I will subdue the enemies of Israel. Number three, one of your sons will succeed you on the throne. And number four, someone from your lineage will be on the throne as long as there is a throne. Now we know, looking back, part of that covenant was when he said, your throne will be established forever, we know that the Messiah was going to come through David's line and he would establish his throne forever in the person of Jesus Christ. All that was loaded in. So, what does that mean for today's message? Well, if you remember some of my introductory material in the last couple weeks, I let you know that First and Second Samuel are not written chronologically. They are written what? 
topically. So therefore, some things are moved out of order. And our last story was God promised David this. What should the next story be? So did it happen? That's what the next story is. So we are now connecting chapter 8 with chapter 5 about David's military victories. If God says, I'm going to fight for you, take out your enemies, the next question is, did he? That will be the story for today. This exact same story is told in 1 Chronicles chapters 18 and 19. And this actually covers a period when David wrote a song about it in Psalm 60. We'll touch on that briefly. All right, let's just read the first two verses and we'll pray for the word and begin this morning. It says, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Well, sure sounds like God's off to a good start, right? Oh, that's fantastic. He already knocked out two of the most powerful enemies that are around. So that looks great. The problem is it sure looks messy, doesn't it? He has them actually lie down, slaughters two-thirds of them. We realize this is a really messy business, and we get kind of confused. Well, I thought if God was involved, everything's nice. No, everything's not nice. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you would open up your word to us, that you would actually reveal what you're doing behind the scenes to us as mankind. You did not need to do that. You did that out of love. Lord, what are we going to do with the information? Um, Father, if it's just academic, we could have read a book and stayed at home. But I just pray, Lord, that maybe it would be life-changing. That, Holy Spirit, that you would soften the hearts of all of us, that we'd begin to increase in faith, believe you at your word, and walk out of this place more confident than ever that what you say will be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what I'm going to do through this is I'm going to read little passages and I'm going to paraphrase some then I'll read a little bit more and then I'll paraphrase a little bit more so we can get through a series of chapters. All right, let's go through this a little bit slower. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Now we've heard about this before. This is recapping. But what's so amazing about that is that the Philistines have been the primary enemy of the Israelites for the last 125 years. That's a long time. Saul in his 40-year reign, was never able to do this. Saul, in his amazing strategy, military might, and amazing ability to be a warrior, could never get it accomplished. Why? Because God was not fighting for him. God fought for David. In a very short amount of time, David subdued the Philistines. He did not take over their territory per se. He took over some of their key cities and shoved them back into their area. Let's go ahead and just throw up a map, Gary, if we can, just so I can use my pointer. Um, right here, you'll notice that this red line here in the center is basically David's territory. The Philistines are driven back into this small area there on the coast. But as we are going to go through these chapters of 8, 9, and 10, you're going to see that David's exploits and his military adventures with God allow him to end up defeating enemies in this huge green line. Now, the nation of Israel was never at that far of the borders that they controlled for any length of time. 
But through David, it expanded all the way out to here. That's extraordinarily significant. So as we go through, I'm going to leave this map up the whole time. Whenever we refer to different cities, I want you to look on the map as to where they are. One of our cities that we're going to be studying is Zoba. Notice how far north that is. That's a big deal. All right, let's go back to it. And David took Gath. If you notice on the city, that's on the very edge of the Philistine territory. You said, Gath, I thought it was Megathama. Well, if you look in Chronicles, it throws in the word Gath. We know who was born in Gath. Goliath, yeah? So David not only killed Goliath early in his career, but now that he's king, he ends up taking over the city where Goliath was from and where David spent some time. That's a pretty big deal. It says, and he defeated Moab. You can see right there, Moab is uh, right there in the southern part down by the Dead Sea. And David defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Uh, Real quick side note, why did David leave some of them? When they came in and conquered the promised land in the first place, they were told to wipe out everybody. Why would David leave anybody? That is a very simple strategy. It is that Israel, although they are numerous in certain pockets, they're not big enough to control the territory. They're still growing into their pants, right? So you need to take over. We do the same thing in this world. America does anyway. Uh, When you conquer somewhere or you want to have a presence there, you set up military bases all over the area. In the same way, everywhere David conquers, he ends up setting up people to continue to run the land as military slaves. And he also sets up a garrison there or a military base. All right. So that's how he extends his influence. Now, Zoba, there in the north, it's intriguing because David defeated the king and city of Zoba, left some of the people there, but he ended up taking some uh, shields of gold from the bodyguards and dedicated them to the Lord. You go, what's the big deal about that? Well, I don't know. Why does God need shields of gold from bodyguards? David goes and he takes them home and puts them in a special little room and says, God, here's your present. Why does God need that? Does God play dress up? And God's like, you know what? What I don't have in my collection is gold shields from bodyguards. So that's really fantastic. Thank you. What do you give the guy that has everything? Right? All right. It says he also took a ton of bronze from that city, which is intriguing because in Chronicles it tells us Solomon used that later to build something very significant in the temple. So we go, oh, it was put into play. Great. That's fantastic. Now I see why I dedicated it to the Lord. But what about the bronze, uh, the gold shields? What about those? Keep that in your mind because we're going to address that again. But it says over and over and over. And God gave victory to David wherever he went. When he attacked Zobah up here in the north, what's extraordinary about that is that the Syrians, now the Syrians are outside this area. The Syrians are out here. They come in and help out, send 22,000 soldiers to go try to defeat David as he's expanding his empire. He beats them all down. Notice David one, Syrian zero. Okay, we're going to keep that going throughout the day. All right. Now, when it talks about how many people he conquered, that leads us to one other side note. In Chronicles, the numbers are different than in Samuel. Why? Well, we have two problems. Number one, Samuel 
The author of Samuel and the author of Chronicles do not calculate numbers the same way. Sometimes one author will do exact numbers, the other one will round up. But the numbers are extraordinarily different. One will say there was a thousand soldiers, the other will say there was seven thousand. That's a big discrepancy. Either there was a thousand or there was seven thousand. Now either they're counting in a different way or we have copyist errors. Understand that our, we are putting together the scripture that we have from the fragments that are available. Scholars are consistently working through this. Most scholars believe that the numbers in Chronicles are more accurate than the numbers in Samuel. You go, oh no, the Bible's full of errors. No, it's not. We're merely in our translating process in process. We are beginning to refine and show which ones are most accurate. That does not mean that the Bible is full of contradictions or problems. All right? We just need to know where we need to look for the accurate numbers. Okay? All right, let's move on. Look at verse 13. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. That sounds like a pretty cool thing. And whenever we read in the Bible, it sure seems clean cut, doesn't it? David goes in, wipes out 18,000 people in the Valley of Salt. Wouldn't that be nice if all of our lives wrapped up in neat little segments like a Hallmark movie? After two hours, everything's good. It's all clean. Put a little bow on it. We're good. I learned all the lessons I needed to learn. And let's move on. But none of our lives are like that. They're, all, they're very messy. And half the time we don't get the answers. We don't even know how the program's supposed to finish. Because God's still writing it. So why did I highlight this story when it sounds so clean cut? Because if you just blow through that story, that's how you think it went. Problem is, if you read in Chronicles... It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says, And Abishai, son of Zariah, made a name for himself when he took out 18, uh, however many it was, 18,000 men in the Valley of Salt. So was it David or was it Abishai? Well, what's odd about that is this is the time that during this battle that we think is a one-liner, super clean cut, David wrote a psalm about it, Psalm 60. Guess what the psalm says? God, I'm confused. Everything's complicated. I feel like you're fighting against us. I don't know if we're going to win. I don't understand what's going on, but I have to trust in you that what you're doing is good. You told me you were fighting for me. It sure doesn't feel like that, and I don't know what I'm doing. So what I'm going to continue to do is do what you asked me to do in faith. Oh, by the way, in that psalm, it says, and Joab killed 12,000 at the Valley of Salt. Oh, now we got a third character. So is it David, is it Abishai, or is it Joab? Come on, can't we all agree on it? It's not like they didn't know everybody else was recording somebody else. Here's the fact. No one person wipes out 18,000 people. It's always a group effort. And I need all of us to understand that we are not to go through life alone. We are all doing a group effort. We are part of a community, and God is moving through us collectively, and we need to join together and be a part of things, because when God orchestrates a massive movement, he usually involves many different people. I would imagine there are thousands of names that could be fitted in here. All right? So it says in verse 15, 
So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. It seems that when David would win a war, for example, this Zoba thing, he got gold, silver, and bronze, he would always dedicate the gold, silver, and bronze back to God. He would have some of his own, but he'd give a whole bunch to God. And then when he leads his people, he just seems to be the best guy ever. He leads them with equity and justice. I don't want you to raise your hand, but I want you to think in your mind. How many of you have suffered under poor leadership in the past? Whether it was in your home or whether or not it was in a church or whether or not it was, you see what I mean? And you are dying inside. And when you finally get around somebody that's not being selfish, but they actually have your best interest in mind, there's a soothing. Israel had been underneath Saul doing it his own way for 40 years and they were wiped out. They were exhausted. Here comes David and he's actually caring about them and doing things. But along the way, he seems to have this extraordinary partnership with God. He just seems to be balanced. He seems to have a life of worship. And he keeps giving God stuff that we would look at and say, God doesn't need that. Let's revisit the shields thing. Now he has given God golden shields from bodyguards. He's giving him gold, silver, and bronze. What's God going to do with that stuff? Doesn't it just sit in a storehouse? So why is he giving it to God? The answer to this question is going to be very personal to you in about two moments. However you answer that question will speak volumes about what you believe. You've got to understand what's the connection. Well, what does it say about David when he gives gold shields and gold and silver and bronze to God? Because obviously God doesn't, doesn't care, right? God's not using that stuff. It's not like God's going, yeah, I got more money, right? He doesn't need David's money. But what does it say about David? It says a few things, and I'll answer for you. Maybe this is what was in your mind. Maybe it says David wasn't greedy. Could it say that? Well, yeah, because he didn't keep everything. He gave things to the Lord. Even whether or not the Lord was going to use them this way or that way really didn't matter. You at least know that he's a good leader because he wasn't all greedy and keeping everything for himself. It also tells you what? He values the Lord because he was giving very valuable things to God. And from all other viewpoints, from a pagan viewpoint, he was wasting, right? Couldn't you do a lot of cool stuff with gold, silver, and bronze and shields? You could probably melt those down. So why are they sitting in a storehouse for God? It also shows that David didn't make money his God. He still knew who his God was, it also shows that David knew that God was fighting his battles for him. Does it not? All right. After considering all four of those analogies about why David gave him stuff God didn't need, let me ask you this. Why does God want us to give offerings to the Lord? Do you really think it's because God needs your stuff? It's never been about that it says volumes about you it says volumes about your character it says volumes about what you value it says volume god is not interested in going man i'm a little short on cash this month i wish the church would kick it up he doesn't need the money but you desperately need to give it away 
because it affects your heart. See, giving to the Lord is not primarily about changing what God's doing. It's primarily about changing the individual that's giving. It's a big difference. But boy, it sure looks like a waste to some of us, doesn't it? Of course it's a waste. It's sitting in a storehouse. It's being used by God for things that you would never use it for. Okay. But it's not for that. It's about breaking the idolatry in your heart. Yeah? Let's move on. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And then it has a whole listing of David's government cabinet. This was the secretary of the state. These are the head of the special forces. They were these, uh, the guys that are the priests. The only thing I want to pay attention to right now is that it says these guys were the priests, and it mentions two names. Now, both those names historically are high priests. We all know that in Israel's history, there can only be how many high priests? One. Why are two guys mentioned? There's Abiathar, excuse me, Ahimelech, and there is Zadok. Why are two high priests mentioned if only one can serve at a time? Probably because this was a time of transition. Because Ahimelech is related to who? Eli. Anybody remember what happened in Eli's line? What did God say about Eli's priestly line? It was going to what? Cut off. This is the last guy. He's still alive. So he's still serving, but when he's done, Eli's whole line is done, and Zadok's line takes off. As a matter of fact, Zadok's line will be in the high priestly seat not only through the rest of this story, but almost all the way through all the other stories and into the New Testament. That's a big deal. This is a transition of leadership. Let's pick it up in chapter 9, verse 1. I think this story, although we've mentioned it in the past, is worth repeating. Let's read through it. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Quick question. Who's Jonathan? Jonathan is David's best friend. Is Jonathan still alive in our story? No, he's not. So does it matter? See, what happened was when David was spending time with his best friend, they made a covenant with each other. And it kind of went something like this. Hey man, you're my best friend. So whichever one of us dies first, can you take care of our families? And they said, yeah, absolutely, man. I'm there for you. Okay. That's great. Well, now Jonathan has passed away. He died on the battlefield with his dad. Who's his dad? Saul, the prior king, this makes it complicated because what David is saying is I'll take care of your family, but any of Jonathan's family is Saul's family who was just on the throne. What's the problem with having a new king with old king family around? There's a complication in the palace. What David has done is put himself at risk. If he brings in one of Saul's lineage into his palace and cares for them, there's a possibility that they're going to vie for the throne and rip it off. That's very, very dangerous. So now we have a moral choice. How would you handle this? You promise your friend that you'll take care of his family, but your friend's gone. He doesn't care anymore. It doesn't matter to him. But you promised that you'd take care of his family, but you've never met his family. You were always on the run. You're going to bring in this family who may well want the throne because they're the descendant. 
you still going to keep your promise? Are you going to risk your career on someone you've never met because of a promise you made decades ago? Most of us would say, absolutely not. I don't care what I said. It doesn't affect my friend anymore. He's no longer with me. But that, of course, speaks volumes again about your character. David was willing to risk everything because he gave him his word. And his word was, I care about you and I promise you, I'll take care of your family. Now, the way it works in the ancient world is when one king takes over for another, you slaughter their whole family. That's how it works. David had most of them through the process. They all ended up getting killed. So David's looking around going, now that I'm settled, I really need to honor my promise to my best friend. So who can I honor, right? Let's take a look. Now, there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. They called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. What does that mean? Ziba used to be a big, powerful, super wealthy uh, big dog in Saul's cabinet. He was a servant of his. So if David calls you up, what is the first thing you need to let him know? Dude, I'm on your side. Right? I'm, I'm I'm not old school. New school. Check that out. I'm all about you. Okay. The king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, well, there's still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled. The next question is going to put Ziba on the spot. The king said to him, where is he? Now, do we all understand when kings ask questions, sometimes they don't have the best motives in mind. Anybody remember when Herod asked where the new king was born looking for Jesus? He was not interested in worshiping him. Okay, you have to be very careful. When someone says, hey, where is he? Obviously, David doesn't know where he is because he's been in hiding. So Ziba has to trust David's character and say, I know exactly where he is. Let me tell you. He said, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him. Skip forward. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face and paid homage. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. Now, Mephibosheth is a little nervous. Everyone else in his family has been slaughtered. So he's going to come in front of David. He falls on his face. And whether he wanted to or not, he's going to pay homage to David. David, I understand that I am the grandson of the last king that wanted to kill you. But don't judge me on that. I'm a good guy. Besides, look, I'm crippled. Right? All right? It's a big deal. Watch this. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. I thought Saul owned all of Israel. No, we're talking about Saul as a man, an Israelite, not as the king. And Saul had home territory. He was going to give all that home territory back into the family in honor of Jonathan. Okay. But look at the next line. And you shall eat at... My table always. What does that mean? Who eats at the king's table? Who eats at your table? Family. That's it. When David said that, what was he promising? And I will take you in and treat you as one of my children. Never met you before. That's a big deal. Brings him in. Now look at how he responds. And... Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now, I think that speaks volumes about Mephibosheth. Number one, he didn't have to say that. 
I think it shows humility, but I also think that it shows low self-esteem. Why? Because in these days, if you have a handicap, for some of us, there's a certain amount of consideration made for you. In the ancient world, you were cast aside and told you were nothing. Now, we may struggle to this day with our identity in having a handicap, but in the ancient world, people consistently made you feel like garbage. And in that day and age, dogs were scavengers. They were mongrels, dangerous, diseased. And so when you would want to insult somebody, you'd say, you're a dog. However, he says, I'm not just a dog. I'm a rotting dog. I am no use to anybody. Why would you honor me like this? Now, we've mentioned it once before. The only reason Mephibosheth is alive is because he's crippled. Why? Because a fully functioning young man would have been slaughtered because they would have thought that he was going to try to vie for the king. But because of his handicap, they assumed that he would not be able to make that bid and ever become king. So as much as we look and we go, it's sad that he's handicapped, I need you to understand that God used his handicap to bless him. It's the only reason he's still there. Everyone else was killed. And this is the part we need to wrap our heads around. Some of us right now are suffering from a handicap. I already told you mine. And you know what? I hate it. I hate the idea that I have all kinds of issues with my body collapsing on me. I can't stand that. And I would love, and I've prayed a million times for it to go away. But at the same time, I'm wise enough to realize what God has done with it. I am who I am because of that handicap. I preach the way I am because of the handicap. I treat people the way that I do because of my handicap. So as much as we look out and we say, God, you've forgotten me. You've abandoned me. I'm not important to you. Otherwise, you would have fixed my handicap. Have you ever considered that may have been your greatest gift? It is. It is. Absolutely crucial. That we do not see that the difficulties of our lives are because our God does not love us. The difficulties of our lives are being utilized by God for a purpose. And he is blessing this man through his challenges. Look at the next piece. If you read that following piece, here's what you'll find. David hires Ziba an incredibly wealthy man, to be Mephibosheth's number one servant. Says, I want you to work his land. I want you to make as much money as you can for him. I want you to bless him. But you don't need to worry about where he eats. He's going to be at my table. Verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. It will mention his handicap over and over and over again. It was part of his identity. Go to chapter 10, verse 1. After this, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally or kindly with me. They had a peace treaty for years. Now understand the Ammonites. I want you to just look at the map again real quick. Jerusalem's here where David runs. Ammon is right here. So either you're going to fight a lot or you're going to have a peace treaty. He had a peace treaty with his dad. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites to Hanan to console him. But the princes of the Ammonites, 
meaning his counsel, said to Hanan their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Let's pause right there. Is that what David's doing? No. What's David trying to do? Be a good guy. He's trying to be nice. I understand that your father passed away. I just want to send you some honor. I want to let you know, hey, can we continue on the peace treaty that we had before? All his counsel steps in and gives him bad advice. Why? I have no idea. Now, granted, God's going to work through it, and God is agitating the situation. But what were they thinking? Let me give you a practical understanding of this. They're about to ruin everything. They're about to give him such extraordinary bad advice, it's going to lead to their death. So how do we make it practical? Let me say this as blatant as possible. You ready? If your inner core of friends, who you get most counsel from, who you live most with, who you allow into the core of your heart, if they do not have a relationship with God, don't you dare think you're going to live a victorious life of worship. That's it. Why? Because they don't give you advice from a godly mindset. They're going to give you advice from what they know. And what they know is themselves. They're going to tell you what they would do. Unfortunately, Jesus isn't a factor in their lives. Now, do we need to have friends that do not know the Lord? Of course we do. Do we need to be able to be involved in our neighborhoods, in and have all kinds of touching into the world? Yes, of course we do. Should we be operating on a consistent basis to reach out and minister to the needs of the world around us? Yes. What I'm challenging is who are your inner core? And if all of your closest friends don't know Jesus, you are not going to be able to walk in victory because you can't walk alone. That's never going to happen. You need to rethink why they're so comfortable with you. If you are so in love with Jesus, why aren't they agitated? These are questions to be thinking about. Because they seem pretty comfortable. You don't seem to have any factor in their lives. Let's pick it up again. How'd it go? So Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half the beard of each, cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent messengers to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. The king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, then return. What just happened? In the ancient world, if you touch a man's beard, you're ready to fight. Don't touch my beard. You'd reach out and grab a hold of somebody's beard. That was the idea that you're about to throw down. That's how it works. Okay. And they are extremely prudish about revealing anything. The men would wear long flowing draping dress type things, tunics, robes, stuff like that. You do not show skin in this environment. How did they dishonor them? They cut out right here. They cut out the complete back like a hospital gown with no tie. <laughs> what would happen to us is we'd be all upset and embarrassed and then we would go take a cab home. They don't have that. You walk home. You get on a horse home. Whatever you do, your only clothes have no back to them. 
and you're completely bare in the back. Bareback riding is a whole new idea, right? All right. In that environment, that was the utmost way to humiliate someone else. Was that a good choice on their behalf? I don't think so. It says, when the Ammonites learned they had become a stench to David, well, I guess it didn't go too well. They end up realizing, oh no, we're going to war. I don't know if we're going to win this. So they hired 33,000 Syrians from outside. Don't we already have an accounting of the Syrians? How did they do last time? Oh, David won Syrian zero, right? They're back in on it. They are the hired guns, the mercenaries. They are brought in. Ammonites pay for 33,000 Syrians to come in. The Ammonites and the Syrians line up in two different teams. They come marching against David. David says, Joab, that's his commander-in-chief. And remember, Joab is nasty. Joab is hardcore, right? And he had two brothers that start with A. Remember that? One guy died when he was chasing another guy, if you remember that. These are David's mighty men. These are guys that all they think about all day long is how do you kill someone faster, right? So these are tough guys, right? These are the guys that every time they finish a conversation, they go, hoo-ah, right? And you're like, what the heck was that? What? Something all right with you, okay? So they split up into teams. Joab says, I'm going to take these guys, you take those guys, We'll back each other up. And he says this phrase. It's really powerful. He says, if the Syrians are too strong for me, you help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, brother, then I will come and help you. But be of good courage. And let us be courageous and use our strength for our people, for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. hoo <laughs> If you take notes, I want you to write this down. He just gave you five steps on how to handle challenges in your life, battles in your life. It goes like this. Number one, check in with the Lord, check in with the Lord before you do anything else. The only reason they're in this battle is because David believes that it is God's battle. God started it up. God's the one that agitated it. Have you ever felt like God threw you a battle and then he threw you another one? Then he threw you another one while you're still reeling from the last one. Does God do that? Of course he does. Does God stir up a hornet's nest? What was David trying to do? He was trying to be the good guy. He was trying to be the nice guy. And God caused this whole thing to blow up in his face. Now he's fighting two guys. You would never plan a strategy to fight the Ammonites and the Syrians. Only God would come up with a plan like that. And so sometimes we go through life and we go, I just lost my house. I'm reeling. I don't know what to do. Then you go back to work and they tell you you're fired. You go, God, I could not handle the first one. How in the world am I going to handle the second one? And then you get sick. How in the world am I going to handle the third one? And it just keeps hitting. The blows keep coming at you. And we wrestle with this. God, you must not care about me. David must have went, God, what are you doing? I'm trying to be the nice guy. And God said, I got more than one battle to fight. I actually want to take out three of your enemies at one time. I'm not interested in doing them one by one because I'm bigger than that. I can handle all sorts of things. Remember that God's glory is maximized when your situation becomes more impossible. Number one, check in with God. Number two, partner up if you can. Notice that he went back to back with his brother. Found the toughest man that he knew. They were raised as warriors. He said, you get my back, I'll get yours. Do not live in isolation. If you do not have friends, make some. Because you're not going to live victoriously without them. Number three, 
Do your best. They said, be, let's get in there. Let's do our best. You know how to fight. I know how to fight. Let's fight with everything that we have. Put it all on the line. Do your best. Number four, be courageous. Courage means you feel the fear and you do it anyway. If you know that it's God's battle, you go in and fight with everything that you have. You don't back down. And you fight with faith. Number five, let the Lord do what he needs to do. Ultimately, your prayer must end in not my will, but thy will be done, Father. And that's what they just said. Joab said to his brother Abishai, let's go out and fight our guts out. Leave it all on the field. And God's going to do with that what he's going to do. Let's be all right with that. They didn't know how the battle was going to go. This is a huge battle. Guess what? Joab wipes out his crew. Abishai starts taking down his crew. They panic, run away. They get them all grouped up into a one area. David comes in with reinforcements. They surround them. David ends up leading the charge. And it says 40,000 Syrians were wiped out that day. How many did they lose last time? Right? 22,000. Now they lost another 40 grand. Look at the last line in your Bible right there. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. (laughs) Now what's so cool about that? Is God wanted to defeat the Ammonites and the Syrians, so why not just knock it out in one shot? God's plan for you and how he operates through your life, as much as it feels like it's going worse and worse and worse, is God's ability to say, you know what, I can handle far more enemies than this. And I will stir it up and I will take them all down. Let me close with this. If we know that there is a battle in our life that God wants to engage in, then we can rest assured that it's going to go the way that he dictates. But if we're busy battling things that we have no business fighting about, we might be on our own or fighting against the will of God. However, if we have discerned God's voice in a matter, then there is great peace that can come, a perfect peace that soothes our hearts knowing that our Heavenly Father, the mighty warrior king of the universe, is our personal bodyguard. And he never loses. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, may we spend all of our time asking you what you want. But Lord, we feel like things are out of our control in many ways and we want to hand them off, but we're so afraid that you're not going to care about it as much as we care about it. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But Father, I do believe that if we are in line with you, if we are walking in your ways, if we're keeping in step with the Spirit, 